I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topic ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond in order to provide a nuanced, educational, and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. Before I start, I would like to do a land acknowledgement that this podcast episode is being recorded on the stolen Creek and Muscogee lands. I am so excited to have Dr. Roxy Manning here with me today. Dr. Manning is a clinical psychologist and certified Center for Nonviolent Communication trainer. She brings decades of service uh, of service experience to her work, interrupting explicitly and implicitly oppressive attitudes and cultural norms. Dr. Manning has worked, consulted, and provided training across the U.S. with businesses, nonprofits, and government organizations wanting to move towards equitable and diverse workplace cultures as well as internationally in over 10 countries with individuals and groups committed to social change. She also works as a psychologist in San Francisco, serving the homeless and disenfranchised mentally ill population. She's the author of How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations, Embracing Our Full Humanity to Challenge White Supremacy, and the co-author with Sarah Payton of the companion text, The Anti-Racist Heart, A Self-Compassion and Activism Handbook. Dr. Manning, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Dr. Werner. Um, so let's get into it. I I have uh, been lucky to receive an advanced copy of your book, and I have gotten mm-hmm. started, and it's so good. I'm so excited to actually read the whole thing, not just because you're a guest on the podcast, but because I actually really want to read it. And I shared with you before we started, I have the nonviolent communication book on my desk that I've been waiting to read for months. So I feel like... Mm-hmm the stars have aligned to, to bring us here together. Um, could you share a little bit about who you are and, and kind of what brought you into this work? Absolutely. Well, your guests can't actually see me. So I think it would help to start off by saying I'm a person who occupies a lot of identities that are often considered marginalized. So I'm a black Afro-Caribbean immigrant and I'm also disabled. I have a hearing disability. Um, I occupy a lot of different identities. And part of what I've learned is that I've been having to move through the world in ways that helped me first understand what my identities are and how people experience them. And then also, how do I want to show up with both the identities I have and the privileges I have? I have a PhD, I'm educated, right? Mm -hmm. So that I can create the kind of world that I want my kids and everyone in the world to live in. And that has been kind of like my goal, my mission for the last 20 years, ever since I started having children of my own. That's amazing. Um, How, how, what was the, because, because in the, in the book, you talk a lot about the, the, experience being an immigrant and and facing this, you know, wanting to come to terms with your own identity, but then also feeling like you need, like the, the right to comfort comes up a lot and, and wanting to um, kind of edit yourself or, or, or manage how you express yourself so that other people Mm-hmm. Don't get upset. Um, and I don't know if I'm saying that exactly correctly, but what, yeah. what was that like? And how did you come into your your voice? That's a really great question. 
when I first came to the United States, I didn't have a lot of understanding. I was seven years old. I didn't understand what it meant to be Black. And because I was growing up as a child who was occupying a Trinidadian identity, I still never quite understood what the Black experience in the United States was. And so a lot of my early years was having to navigate by myself. Like, what does it mean to be Black? And how do I make sense of the way the world is responding to me? And unfortunately, one of the ways that I dealt with that is, I think, pretty common for other immigrants that I've spoken to. You know, we're often told, like, the way that you can be successful is to not be like those Black Americans, right? Mm -hmm. And there's this kind of deliberate pitting different groups against each other. And I would say that I bought into that when I was younger. I was thinking, like, you know, oh, if I work really hard, if I do everything perfectly, then I will be great and successful. And the reason that other people weren't was because they weren't willing to. Mm. And I didn't have like a systemic lens to look at what was happening that was keeping certain groups down and certain groups giving them more access to privilege. And so that was part of my journey was understanding that absolutely, you know, there were things that I was doing as an individual, but I couldn't have done those things without the support from a lot of people around me, a lot of people who paved the way and a lot of people who kept trying to lift me up, trying to support me. So that was one aspect of um, kind of finding my way. And then the other aspect, which has been challenging, was figuring out, and how do I relate to people from groups with more privilege? Because it was really clear that if I spoke up, if I said, hey, that isn't working for me, that I could easily get marginalized and told like, oh, you're just one of those people. <laughs> you're not supportive. You're not, we're not comfortable around you. So it was never around my comfort. It was around what kept other people comfortable. But I realized that that was also silencing me and keeping other people comfortable was at my expense. And so I wanted to find a way that we could create a world where everyone had kind of the skills and capacities so that we can have these conversations and create true comfort, true belonging and inclusion for everybody. That's so beautiful. And it's so it's always so interesting to hear from people of all identities the kind of process they went through and, and, and the, you know, hearing you say, like, I was, I fell into the trap of othering African-Americans mm -hmm. versus Caribbean. Um, it's just so, to see how deep white supremacism culture pervades and how it mm -hmm. works to separate us or to try to separate us. Um, and, and to hear how you grappled with that and, and, Mm -hmm. I'm really excited to have you name that explicitly, because I think that's one of the challenges that comes up when people talk about white supremacy. Like I hear people resisting naming something as white supremacy because they think, oh, you're only talking about me as a white person. And I'm like, no, white supremacy impacts all of us, regardless of my identity. We're yeah. all breathing it in and it impacts how I see myself, other groups and how we see each other. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And I think that when people understand, for me, when I started to understand that, it it made things make a lot more sense in terms mm -hmm. of like seeing the bigger picture and, and I could engage in the work for me in a way that felt less like timid and scared and whatever, and more yeah. just like, this is, this is what it is. And let's, and what do we do rather than like, oh, I'm going to mess up or what if I mess up? Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I'm going to mess up. And yeah, we're all impacted by it. 
how how so so I would love to hear your um to hear you talk about beloved community and what that mm-hmm. is and why that's so important to you. Yeah, so I was introduced to the work of or the Martin Luther King's framing of beloved community, right? Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s framing. And it's something that immediately resonated with me. One of the things that I like really connected to as, as I was writing the book was understanding that because of all of the different identities I occupied, and then also the different schools that I went into growing up, I never felt like I was only part of one culture, right? I was both a Caribbean kid and a Black kid and a woman and a person with a hearing disability and all of these different identities, which made it hard for me to look at any other group as not mine. Like it was, no, I belong to all of these different areas. And so when I started thinking about beloved community and learning learning about it, that's when I felt hope. When I think about beloved community, I like to invite people to think about it like a family. When we have a family, we can have conflict. We can have something that like your sister is doing that you absolutely hate, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't say like, oh, my dear sister, you're doing this thing I hate. Therefore, you can't be my sister anymore. And we throw them away. Instead, we say, hey, we need to have a conversation about what you're doing. And we need to find a way for you to get your needs met in a way that's not going to impact me so strongly. And we try to find ways to work together to create a family system that works for all of us. And that's what beloved community is for me. It's thinking about every person as a member of my family. And some members are doing things that I absolutely hate that are Mm -hmm. harming me. And I don't discard them. I just say, we really need to be in dialogue and fix this so that we can actually work together and be a well-functioning family. So that's what beloved community is for me. How can I create a family system that works? That's beautiful. And do you you feel like that is a part of like community care or do you like do you feel like mm-hmm. beloved community extends to how we care for each other mm-hmm. as well absolutely it's not just about like is this going to work for me in fact when i think about that family analogy i know that what's working for me isn't truly working for me if it's not also caring for the well-being of all of my family members. And so this idea of community care, a community that holds everybody is essential. It's a part of beloved community. So absolutely. I love that. I love that because when, when my partner um, and I do our anti-racism trainings, we, we talk about, we can't, we have to love each other and do who we want to be. And that, that's something that I heard from, um, uh, Michelle Johnson. Um, mm-hmm. and it always feels a little weird to say it when we're in corporate spaces, like we have to love, you know, that, that it comes across <laughs> kind of sounding too kind of Pontianish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so I love how you're explaining it because the hate doesn't get us anywhere, but I guess, how would you, how would you differently explain a phrase like we have to love each other into who we want to be? How, how would you further elaborate on that? Yeah, I th- kind of think about it almost from a psychological perspective. If I hate you, 
and I try to shame you into changing your behavior and being better, we know it doesn't work. The more that I feel shame, the more I feel scared about like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm going to be cast out. I don't belong. And the more we almost either double down because this is what I, it's like, if you're going to hate me, then I need to say that what I'm doing is the correct thing. Or I collapse. I fall into this fragile state and I can't actually show up. So hate doesn't actually create change. But if I can do the kind of loving kindness that parents do with children, right? When we want to change our children's behavior, we don't hate them, or at least I want to acknowledge that some parents are still learning, right? <laughs> some children have not had this experience. But the kind of parent I want to be for my children yeah. is that I want to let them know that, you know, I absolutely love you, my dear child, and I don't like the behaviors. And, you know, as long as I keep loving you and letting you know that you're safe, then you have room to experiment with, well, what if I did try a different behavior? Do I still get my needs met? If I don't love you, you're not going to be willing to take that risk. That is so beautiful. Especially that last part is just amazing. So I love, and, and you also make it, you, you express it in a way that seems just like so practical and how could, how could anyone think anything otherwise? I, I love how you've explained that. So how did you first come across, because you, your work melds together, or at least this book does, mm -hmm. um, uh, beloved community and nonviolent communication. So I, I wonder if you could give a, a little bit of, an, a, of a background on nonviolent communication and how you got into that work. And then we can talk oh, about absolutely them together. Sure. So nonviolent communication started, I think it was in the 60s. Dr. Marshall Rosenberg was the person who kind of pulled together a whole bunch of modalities and created this new thing, nonviolent communication. And my understanding was that he was inspired by what was happening in the civil rights movements in the United States and kind of saying, and especially by Dr. King's work, and saying, wow, people are resisting inequities. They're resisting all of the injustices that we're seeing, but in a way that's actually creating community, creating hope. And he wanted to help quantify, like, how do we do that? And so that's what nonviolent communication is. It basically summarizes an approach to thinking about the world and thinking about how we relate to each other as one big piece, the consciousness aspect of it. And then it also has some steps that you could look at that can help you embody that consciousness. And you asked, how did I come across this, right? Mm -hmm. Well, as I mentioned, you know, as a child growing up in our society, one of the things that I was really bad at was kind of taking care of myself. I was always focused on what's going to help me belong, what's going to help other people accept me. And that often meant dropping some of my core needs. Yeah. So I would find myself doing things like, oh, this teacher asked me to do something, I'm going to stay up all night and get it done, rather than say, actually, I've got too much on my plate, I can't do this right now, right? Because I had to be that people pleaser. And when I got my dissertation, my dissertation advisor, Dr. Jane Connor, um, called me up one day and was like, you are so disconnected from your needs. And I found this really amazing thing that's going to change your life. I had no idea what she was talking about, like disconnected from my needs. And that thing was nonviolent communication. And she said, well, I'm going to send you to the very next training about it so we can do research on it. Again, didn't know anything about it, but it was the training was in Argentina. Who turns on a trip to Argentina, right? That's amazing. So I went, and that's when I, I really understood how much of a disservice I had done to myself by prioritizing other people's needs, which is something that Black women learn to do 
instead of actually learning how to hold the hole. How did it land for you when she said you, you're totally disconnected from your needs? Was it, did, was it like, did it feel harsh? Did it feel loving? How did it land? Yeah. Moment? It was confusing because mm -hmm. I didn't understand what needs were back then. Uh -huh. Right. I kept thinking, what do you mean? I'm, I'm kind of like being successful. I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing. Right. What do you mean? I'm disconnected from my needs, but she was talking about the non needs in the, in the framing of nonviolent communication. And that's what I didn't understand and didn't prioritize. So it didn't even, it, it was like not in your paradigm yet to even understand exactly, exactly what she was saying about that. Well, what a, what a, I mean, I hear so many stories, particularly of, of, of women and, and, and black women and, and, you know, people of other marginalized identities getting not supported by, by mm -hmm. their, by their, you know, advisors and, and being told, you mm -hmm. know, brought down rather than lifted up and how beautiful yeah. that, that this one observation mm -hmm. she had and the, and, and this next step that she gave you was such a, a game changer for you. It absolutely was. And I think that's part of what was like, when I think about her, I just want to kind of lift her up, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's part of what was really amazing about her in hindsight. Somebody who's able to look at what we need and not judge us. Like when I think about my book, yeah. I'm thinking about how do we identify when something is not working and talk about it in a way that acknowledges the individual and the systemic. When mm -hmm. she met me, I could not write. I was terrified of writing, and partly because of this really traumatic racist experience I've, I had that I learned was pretty common. And instead of her saying, oh, you are a horrible person, you're lazy, and falling into all the stereotypes about, you know, Black people don't write or Black people are lazy, she actually took the time to understand my experience and then support me so that I could write, I could get my PhD, and then also support me in other ways. I love that. That's, I, that's such a gift. Um, mm -hmm. and, and to know that underneath what we think we know about somebody or, or seeing about somebody, there's going to be a whole, a whole life experience and a whole lived experience that's, that's leading up to that, or, or not, I don't want to say explaining it, but, but, you know, mm -hmm. nothing is what it seems, I, I guess. Yes. Um, so how do you, how do you bring them together? What's, what's the not what's the secret sauce, but but what what's the way that you've brought these nonviolent communication and beloved community together in mm -hmm. in the framework in particular of anti-racism and, and white supremacy culture and and, and self-compassion? Mm -hmm. So this, I think, was the place, this framework that you're naming is exactly where they were struggling. Because even though Dr. Rosenberg had been inspired by the civil rights movement, part of the initial framing of nonviolent communication was this very humanistic approach. We're all humans. We all have the same needs. And that's absolutely true, right? Every single human being has the same needs, but we live in societies where people have different um, capacities to meet their needs. People are constrained from being able to meet their needs. And nonviolent communication didn't always explicitly talk about how to address those inequities. How do we talk about um, differing accesses to resources or differing amounts of privilege? And that's what I tried to bring together. How can I talk about an explicitly anti-racist framework in a way that acknowledges our common um, humanity and also provides a space to name 
discrimination, name inequities when it happens in a way that's still about connecting to, and we all want to create beloved community. So that was part of what I wanted to do. That's so great. I'm, I'm, uh, um, as I transitioned out of medicine, I became a meditation teacher, which was kind of mm-hmm. what saved me through my burnout and was this whole life-changing thing. And then as I've done my exploration into anti-racism and anti-oppression, have realized that my meditation community was super toxic mm-hmm. in in the way it was approaching that the, you know, we are all one thing lens and yeah. how harmful that not just can be, but how harmful that is. And it sounds like there was a little bit of like a did it feel like a spiritual bypassing or a toxic positivity? Or I mean, and I know you maybe yeah. don't use those terms or maybe you do, but, but how, how would you describe? Yeah, well, I mean, essentially, when I think about microaggressions, there were a lot of microaggressions happening and especially of that invalidation um, framing, right? So there was a lot of like, people would come into a retreat and I would want to talk about, I had this experience with racism and instead of being met with full-on empathy, which is part of the practice of nonviolent communication, people would say, well, what's the observation? How did you know that was racism? In a way that they wouldn't say for other folks. Right. And there wasn't even a recognition of like, you know, if I actually am saying that something is landing in me as racism, that's an observation, you know, and you could meet me there. Right. And so it took, right now, I, I'd say there's still a little bit of a schism in the field where some people are still thinking that the road to change is if we can erase any discussion of things like privilege or things like this. And then there are a lot of people now, like I find nonviolent communication is being more accepted in communities of color. And people are saying, and it's because we can talk about privilege, because yeah. we can talk about the harm that's been done in a way that isn't dividing people, but at least naming it, that's making that possible. That is so interesting. So it sounds like there's still kind of an ongoing mm-hmm. need for evolution in the in the community. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't say in all of the community. Yeah. There are amazing people doing great work already. Mm-hmm. But I think that especially some of the folks, there, there's actually a group who calls themselves the elders, right? And who grew up in those early days when, and kind of like when you think of the 60s, when people's hope was that if we're all the same, there will be change. And for a lot of them, there's still a lot of pain around recognizing that that dream isn't necessarily true yet yeah. and a reluctance to give it up. I'm so excited to finish reading your book. It's so good. And it doesn't, I think it comes out in, in a few months. I, right now it's, mm-hmm. it's so I think it comes out in August. Is August it? 29th. I'm so right. excited myself. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not ready to, for this conversation to be done, but let's let's talk a little bit about the book uh, explicitly. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's available August 29th, you said? Correct. Where and it's it? available now for pre-order everywhere. Oh, good. Okay. So pre-order and... Um, so people could go into like a Barnes and Noble, wherever those exist, or a absolutely bookstore and and buy it, or they could get it on Amazon as well. Mm-hmm, absolutely, and I want to encourage everyone go to your local bookstore and ask them to order it. Yeah, oh, that's a good. Of course, that's a that's a great point. Um, so how I'd, I'd love to. I'm I'm very curious about the work that you do, like your clinical work that you do in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, serving homeless and mentally ill patients, mm-hmm. people, humans, um, mm-hmm. and, and how that work, how that impacts you and, and, and yeah. your, 
how it, how it impacts you and how it informs the, the other work that you do. Absolutely. Well, first, I want to say just how heartbreaking it is, right? Because I remember walking down the streets of San Francisco with my child, who is maybe six at the time. And if you've ever been there, there are homeless people everywhere. You know, it's just the most heartbreaking scene. And as adults, we're used to kind of putting our head down and walking past because yeah. we feel helpless. Like, what can I do if I give money? Is it actually changing anything? And my son would actually make me stop and say, could we go into a store and buy food, right? Could we go do something? And it was so clear for him that even if it was just a little thing, we had to create change. And so when I started this job, I think it's been 2014 when I actually started working with the city in this, in this context, I realized that part of what I was doing was helping to make it possible for people to both have their mental illnesses diagnosed, and then they could qualify for social security, which would give them access to more resources. It would make it possible for them to be housed. But part of what I noticed was that people got to tell me their stories. Mm. And they got to tell me their stories where I got to use my nonviolent communication skills as well as my therapy skills. I don't provide therapy. I do evaluations to see if someone meets the criteria in order to get social security. Okay. But in doing these evaluations, I would have someone tell me not just like what's happening with me now, but what are the kind of systemic challenges that led me here? Domestic violence, um, racism, all sorts of things. And having... For those folks, having someone reflected back to them, like not just that you're a human being who's like hopeless, but no, you're a person who's done the best that they could given the circumstances you've had and your needs matter. I noticed how many people felt transformed by having that conversation. Even if they didn't get social security, I sometimes have had people that I would run into the street say, hey, Talking to you, like, helped me feel better about myself, helped me understand that what I needed mattered was important. And I think that's something that we can give, like, we can all give to each other, giving the person, each person a sense that your story matters and your story, not just in kind of the bigger picture, or sorry, the, the details, but that bigger picture of what are your needs? What are the ways that you've been trying to get your needs met? And how can I help you? understand your behavior from that context and also possibly see other options. I think it's so incredible that you're doing that work because it is a population of people that are so, so, so marginalized. And so like you're saying, like mm -hmm. put the blinders up, don't talk to them. And yeah. even I've just recently been like understanding that like, yeah, give them money. And so, yeah. you know, and, and you may have different views on that, but like, mm -hmm the the need to control sort of control what we yes. do, don't give homeless people is such a patriarchal paternalistic yes thing. yes and and so I keep money in my car now and I'll like mm -hmm. roll my window down and get and and give money mm -hmm. to people and it feels really good to do that it feels really good to be like I don't and if they go buy drugs with it they go buy drugs with it yeah. but it's not my job to tell them how and I, that's been mm -hmm. so, for me in, in, in my like understanding, deepening understanding of the world and, and systemic oppression, I've learned so much about that. So I don't know if you have anything you wanted to, to add to that. Or no, I absolutely agree with you because part of what 
this idea that I can control you by not giving you money mm-hmm. is also part of this like erasure of all of the multitude of reasons why people become homeless, right? I've had clients who are homeless absolutely because they're using drug and alcohol and can't maintain work, et cetera. But I've also had people, like I remember some of my clients, like I had one person, and of course I'm not going to give any identifying details, but this was somebody who had been severely mentally ill all of his life, had never used drugs, and had held it together so that he could provide like basic needs for a child that he had. And then as soon as that child got old enough to leave, this person wasn't able to hold it together anymore and was homeless. And it was just like heartbreaking. And he wasn't qualifying for social security because there was this idea, well, well, you held it together that long. Mm. But it was it was just so touching to be able to recognize like this is a bona fide mental illness and this person needs this extra support. And there's so many other stories like that that I could share that we don't recognize the huge diversity of people and the reasons they become homeless. And I want, like, if the best I can do is to numb myself with drugs and alcohol, and I've had people who've said, yeah, that actually is the best I can do, I understand, right? Yeah, it's a strategy that's meeting a need. Yeah, and like, they deserve the resources and the love and and all of that as well. Right. And it's really about harm reduction. How can I say, if this is what you need to do, how can you do it in the least harmful way possible? And how can I get you other resources so that you start to have access to more possibilities? Mm. How do you, okay, so I'm sort of, everything you do, I think is amazing. And now I'm kind of wanting Mm. to bring it back a little bit to, uh, if you're open to it, how you approach somebody. I mean, I've had conversations with let's say white people I know are white friends who, who, who asked me like, Hey, can I run this thing by you? Because I think I did mm-hmm. a thing that was wrong. Mm-hmm. And then I also have conversations with people who like, don't want to hear it at all, even though they would like maybe sign up to have a conversation with me. Mm-hmm. There's no, and I'm going into it thinking like, I'm going to make a difference and look at me and whatever. <laughs> so how do you, when you come across somebody who doesn't really show signs of wanting to change or they're saying something yeah. that's egregious what how, how do you start to find the common ground with them mm-hmm. so I think that I would I would want to slow it down even more hmm. so one of the things I talk about in the book is that a lot of times we jump into these conversations for good reason right we're wanting to create change we're wanting to stop yeah. harm but I always want people to figure out why do I want to have this conversation And I talk about four different kinds of conversations that we could have in the book. So am I wanting, like, as a person of color, am I wanting to be understood and heard for the impact that I've experienced? That's one kind of conversation that I could have. Another one is, do I want some shared understanding about, you know, for you to understand what's going on for me, but for me to also understand why you're doing this thing that you're doing? Mm. Am I going into this conversation because I've been in pain by your actions and I'm wanting some relief and healing from that pain? Or am I actually working for a shared solution, something that's going to work for both of us? So these are different conversations that we could have. And if I know which conversation I want to have, that helps to guide how I'm going to enter that conversation. That's so fascinating. So it's like you got to do your own work first before you go into the conversation. Absolutely. Because we're right. like deciding the outcome of the conversation before we even have the conversation. 
Right. And it's almost like, like you you are asking me this question and you started by saying, sometimes people come to you and they're like, I did this thing, right? And as a white person, I would say that you're in a perfect position to be an ally and to take on some of that labor. Mm-hmm. And so the other place that I like to start when someone says that to me is give them empathy. If I can have somebody recognize like, you did this thing and what's coming up for you when you realize that? Why did that thing not work for you? Um, What's the harm that you're seeing? And get them to see that for themselves, then they're much more open to, and now what can I do differently? But if I jump into that conversation, like you did this thing and here's what you need to do to fix it, but they don't even recognize the harm, why would they want to fix it? Sure. Mm -hmm. That's that's really interesting. For me, there's a sense of ego sort of when I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to change this person's mind or I'm going to like bring, (laughs) I'm going to bring the knowledge to this person and like enlighten. Mm -hmm. When people come to me, I have the conversations and we do it. And that's it. That generally ends well. Mm -hmm. Hopefully Mm -hmm. I have some sort of skill at having those conversations, but the ones that are the absolute worst. And I feel like, you know, everyone's got their like uncle so-and-so at the table who's not going to say something, you know, who says something or, or, or is going to be watching the other news channel or what, you know, whatever it is, mm-hmm. or like so divided. Um, and then, and then people who are white and who were just staunchly, absolutely denying that, like they have anything mm-hmm. to do with the problem. And why are we even talking about whiteness? Why would we even do that? Like, I'm not racist. I blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Oh, how, how do you approach those people? And I, and, and maybe that's, yeah. a you know, as I, I, I don't know who you encounter in, in these conversations, mm-hmm. um, but how, how do you approach those yeah. people who don't even think they did anything wrong to. Mm-hmm. So there are a number of things that I think of. The first is that when someone's, they're, they're the people who are just like, I'm not even in connection with other folks. And therefore, like, I don't think I'm part of the problem, et cetera. That's a different class. So we'll we'll park them for a little bit. But mm-hmm. let's say it's a person who's actually done something and they don't get it. They don't understand why they need to have this conversation. The first piece is helping them to understand, like, I want you to understand what you did. I want you to, I the whole intention versus impact question, right? I need to let them see that I can separate out their intention and that does not remove their responsibility to look at the impact. And so I often start in that way. I have just like um, kind of silly analogy I use with folks to help them really make that difference clear, which is my watermelon story, (laughs) right? Wait. <laughs> yeah. So basically, I I have three kids, and I'm like, you could just imagine if I was in the kitchen, a hot summer day, I'm cutting up some melon for my kids, and we love melon in my family. And as I'm chopping that melon, one of the kids reaches out to grab a piece, and the knife cuts them. Would I go to the kid and say, oh my gosh, baby, you've got a cut, but this watermelon was going to be so juicy. It was delicious. I so wanted you to have this watermelon. Of course not. <laughs> I would say, Darling, you're bleeding. Can I put a Band-Aid on that? And then afterwards, I would talk about the watermelon. And so it's exactly the same. When someone has done something and they have these beautiful, beautiful intentions, I kind of stop them and say, let me tell you the watermelon story. And what I'm wanting you to focus on right now is the cut. I trust that the watermelon is there, but I don't want to talk about it yet. So can we focus on the cut? And that can often help people kind of go, 
okay, yeah, you know, because it's so absurd to think about talking about the watermelon while the kid is bleeding, and they can get it that way. I love that. That's such a great, that's such a great analogy. um, And I feel like would kind of disarm people a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's yeah, story. There's just, you know, there's something about that that is very I don't know, not going to be threatening to people who are right. Like everyone has, I mean, if you have children and you've done anything, you know how easily kids get hurt and how much you'd want to care for them. And it goes back to that beloved community, right? How do you continue to care for yourself as you continue to do this work and work with people? You know, your, your, your work is to have these conversations with people that are happening because they need to be happening. They need to happen. How do you keep yourself cared for. Mm -hmm. I have my community, right? Mm. So I have, I call them my tower, the folks that I come together with and we, and actually let me tell you why I call them the tower. Um, A tower is actually the group name for giraffes. So, you know, you can have a a herd of horses, right? So a tower is a tower of giraffes. I know. And giraffes is one of the symbols for nonviolent communication. So these are my friends who are really committed to this vision of how we want to be in the world. And so when I need to grieve, when I need to uh, make sure that I'm just like (laughs) expressing the pain about some of these conversations, they can hear me, but they can hear me without my worry that they will then go and judge someone else. And that's important for me. I need people who can create space for the kind of mourning that we need to do as we do this work and still hold this idea that no one is unsalvageable. And then I also do things like I read a lot. I've started meditating and this is still a relatively new practice for me. And I've started walking a lot. So, and then my other big passion is taking pictures of flower. There's something about going out in nature and seeing like even the flowers that I will be far away and think this is a perfect flower. And I'll get close and realize, oh, it's kind of beginning to to die or it's got this like broken leaf and it's still gorgeous. And it reminds me that this is about humanity, that we're all perfect even when we have our small flaws and that we can still be appreciated that's so non-instagram in the best way (laughs) (laughs) it's so just like no not capturing it in its perfect 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 moment but like loving it yeah moment of of what it really is Mm -hmm. yeah Um, there was something i wanted oh go on please no no go ahead Yeah, I wanted to go back a little bit to this idea about how to have these conversations with other people also. I said something and I wanted to like make it like we be really, really clear about it because this comes up a lot. So when I talk about meeting people who are doing harmful things with empathy, I want to pause for a moment and talk to the people who are being harmed, right? Because one of the big messages I have for people is that you do not have to stay and be harmed. This is when we need to call in on our allies and say, if this person can't hear me until they get some understanding for the needs that they were trying to meet, great. That might need to happen to create the spaciousness for them to learn and to change. But you don't have to be the one to do it. And so this is like always my, both my invitation to folks who are being harmed to check in with yourself. Don't ever show up because you think you have to. But check in, do I actually have the capacity right now? And if not, there are enough other people who can do this. And it's also my invitation to folks with positions of power, positions of privilege to say, is this the moment when I can stop up, step up and take this one, right? Do the work, do the labor. I'm so glad you named that. And 
because I think there is sometimes passed on to people like you have to have the conversations, otherwise nothing's going to change. Yeah. And that perpetuates white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> if you're doing it in a way that's harming yourself beyond yes. what you're what you feel like you have space for or capacity for. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you what are your uh, in addition to the watermelon story, what are your um are there are there some ways that you go about making people feel safe when you can see that they're like I'm talking mm-hmm. about the harmers at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The, the people who are, you can see that they're getting defensive. You can see they're starting to shut down. Mm-hmm. How do you approach that? Yeah. One of the things that I like to talk to people about is to really get them to understand that there is a difference, um, that we all see the world in different places and ways because of our social location and that this is normal. So helping us understand that this is the way our brains work has been really transformative for a lot of folks I work with. There's a great video on YouTube that I often show folks when I'm teaching or training. And it's one, oh, it's a National Geographic video. And I think it's called the Double Dutch Brain Science video or something like this. If you search Double Dutch and National Geographic, you'll see it. But it's a great video where... um, you, you're asked to watch kids jump. And meanwhile, there are all of these other things happening in, a, in the scene. And when they ask people like, who noticed this or who noticed that in a group, there are always so many people who will, like maybe I saw this one. I'm trying not to give it away, right? So maybe yeah. I saw this piece, but I didn't see this piece. And when people get that, no matter how hard I try, human brains are designed <laughs> to take shortcuts yeah. and that, you know, it's not that I'm never going to make a mistake, but it's really about how I show up. I think people feel hope. They don't have a sense that I'm telling them that you're a bad person because you don't have this under control. But instead that I'm saying, as long as you keep trying, as long as you keep putting in the work, change happens. I think people feel a lot more hope. And so that's one of the things I do. And then related to that is I also try to help people see what is it that I'm seeing and how is my history, my um, understanding of systems influencing what I'm seeing and how is that true for you so that we can understand why we're having such divergent experiences. Can you give an example of that? Yeah, the easiest one I often share is, you know, I do a lot of training and I'm a black woman and I don't sound, quote, black, whatever that means, right? I think I sound black, but a lot of people are surprised by how I sound. And so sometimes people will come up to me and say like, oh my gosh, you're so articulate. Like, that's so amazing, right? (laughs) And I saw the winds on your face. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I talk about that one, somebody might say, but I just meant it as a compliment. Like I tell everybody this, and this is a great example where I talk about, it's not just the thing that you said, the external observation, but it's also where are you coming from? And so for you, if you're a white person and everyone thinks or expects that you're going to speak in a certain way or have a certain level of education, that compliment is just like another innocuous comment. But for me, when I hear that comment, I'm also remembering all of the times that people have either tried to steer me out of like professional opportunities or away from science classes when I was studying to be a psychologist. Or I think of all the opportunities where young Black kids don't have access to education, where they're like when I came to the United States, the school that I was in was a really poorly funded school, right? And so 
all of that comes up for me when I hear that you're so articulate. And that's how I'm hearing that comment, not just what you said, but also all of this history that I'm bringing. And you don't know that history. You have no idea how that's going to land. But when I tell you this, you might start to become more aware why that would be hard for me to hear. And people start to understand like, oh, you're not just saying I'm bad. Yes, I want to be aware of this in the future, but it makes sense why I wouldn't have gotten it now. And now I can do better. Yeah. That's such, both of those are, are so great. Um, and I will put the, I'm going to try to find this double Dutch brain science video and, and put the link to it in the show notes for sure. So people can, can take a look oh, at great. that. Sounds, sounds I'll, I'll give you the link now. Oh, okay. Perfect. <laughs> um, so how do people find you? Um, how can, are, are you on social media? You, I know you have. Absolutely. Um, for, absolutely. You can find me. The best place right now is to go to the book's website, antiracistconversations.com. And you can also link to my personal business website, roxannemanning.com. And so either of those are great places to find me. And from there, you can also find me on Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook. And you'll, there'll be links to all three social media sites from either of those websites. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me uh, today. <laughs> Sorry. We got a little sneak preview of the of the YouTube video. Did you did you find the right one? I did. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah, you can share that with me uh, in the chat. And um I can't I can't wait to read the full book and I'm gonna pre-order it now. Because oh, you don't you. have an advanced copy. I want like the real copy. I want to have <laughs> and I want to support you in that way as well. Um Thanks so so much. thank you again. This was was so I think that I have learned so much from you and I think everybody uh, can learn so much from you. So um, thank you again for, for mm. joining me. And thank you for having me. This was really fun. <laughs> Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.